Hi, this is David Moorfield from LearnToBuyCryptocurrency.com, and in this episode, I'm actually talking to my father, who's an economics professor, and asking him to explain quantitative easing and how it affects our money supply, the value of the dollar, and our economy overall. Okay, I'm Roger Moorfield. I'm a professor of economics at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. All right. And uh, one of the things that I had asked if maybe you could explain to listeners is what exactly is quantitative easing? Okay. Well, first, a little background about our banking system. We have a fractional reserve banking system where when you deposit your money with your uh, retail bank, they hold about 10% of it in reserve against your deposit, and they try to lend out the rest. And this process of lending out your money uh, creates more money to circulate in the economy. Now, we also have a central bank in the U.S. called the Federal Reserve Bank, the Fed for short. And the Fed is a banker's bank. And the Fed is there to try to stabilize the economy, especially prices. Uh, <clears throat> so when the economy is faltering, what the Fed tries to do is to get the banks to lend more money. Uh, so as to stimulate the economy to keep it from contracting any further. Now, in the uh, 07 09 recession, the so called Great Recession, uh, <clears throat> the economy began to contract. And uh, so the, the first thing the Fed does is it takes action to cause interest rates to fall. And uh, there is an interest rate uh, at the an interest rate. That, that is, that signals the rate at which banks borrow reserves from each other. They lend to and borrow from each other. And uh, so if Bank A has excess reserves on deposit, Bank B needs some reserves to lend, then B will borrow from A, and the, the rate at which they borrow is the Fed funds rate. Now, this rate sort of signals the direction of monetary policy. <clears throat> and when it goes down, borrowing becomes cheaper and uh Businesses can borrow more for planning equipment. Home buyers can borrow for homes, can more easily borrow from, for, for their homes, et cetera. <clears throat> now, um, what happened in the 0709 recession is that the, the Fed funds rate, this benchmark rate, went to practically zero. It was about between a quarter of a point and zero. And uh, it still wasn't enough. Banks were not making additional loans to stimulate the economy as desired. So the Fed says, oh, we have this, it's called a so-called lower bound problem. Essentially, you can't go below zero on, on the interest rate. Well, you can, but that's it's another. Uh, and they're paying thing. us to take loans. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Well, uh, so, uh, you know, we resisted going to negative interest rates. But so the Fed said, okay. We're going to actually put more reserves in banks' uh, balance sheet, the balance sheet of commercial banks, so they'll have more reserves to lend. And so what it did, it uh, bought some, well, it it, it, uh, bought some bonds, and uh, it actually paid for these with money and just created out of nothing from an account and just wrote the figures into the account. Okay, here's the money we just created in this, in this account. <clears throat> and so the idea, again, is to um, put more reserves into the uh, commercial banking system so the commercial banks will have more reserves to lend. <clears throat> now, um, this, uh, this special program of stimulating the economy or trying to stimulate the economy through Buying bonds based on money that was created out of nothing is called quantitative easing. Okay, they don't 
call it printing money for obvious PR reasons. Uh, <clears throat> they, they prefer not to call it the bad thing that it really is. So there were three rounds of quantitative easing. The first round didn't work. So the bank, the Fed says, we're going to do it again. And, and they actually did three rounds of quantitative easing. And uh, <clears throat> the bank, uh, the, the Federal Reserve Bank, more than tripled its uh, balance sheet, the, uh, the uh, uh, liabilities it, and, uh, it had on its balance sheet. Now, we'll say, well, okay, so what? Well, when you have dollars circulating through the economy, these dollars are known as the money supply. When you, ex when you expand the money supply based on nothing more than writing numbers into a, an account, uh, you haven't actually created any, anything of value. <clears throat> and so the existing dollars in circulation, when you add more to them, it's like a stock watering scheme. They're they're worth less. You know, if you say if you <clears throat> if you double number the number of shares that a company has issued, but you don't add anything to the value of that company, then it, all the existing shares would actually drop to one half their previous uh, market level. So. <clears throat> Um, what this does, it creates powerful forces that are the, uh, I call it the foundation of, of inflation. Uh, we may not be seeing inflation from that. I was expecting that we would, but we didn't. We haven't seen it so far. So, so many economists said, oh, well, you know, it's, it's a big nothing. It's a bit, not a big deal. Now, my, my take on quantitative easing is that um, it is never a good thing, in my humble opinion, to give a, a group of unelected, just you know, government-appointed central bankers the authority to create money out of nothing, in a um, uh, you know well-intentioned but apparently not work, not well-working uh, uh, program to expand the money supply and therefore expand the economy. Economy Now, why didn't quantitative easing work? I mean, it may have worked a little bit. We're not exactly sure because we can't go back and say, okay, let's do a controlled experiment and see what the economy would have done without quantitative easing. But, you know, as the best that everybody can tell, QE or quantitative easing didn't work very well at all. So we wound up <clears throat> because – why didn't it work? Because – the banks uh, were not making more loans as the Fed was trying to get them to do. And the old saying we've heard many, many times, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So the Fed does not have the authority, nor should it have, to make banks, to compel banks to make loans. And they were very, the banks were very risk-averse, so they didn't make a lot of extra loans. And so the so – Where did the money go? <laughs> well, <clears throat> that's a that's a that's a really good question. Uh, you know, it's still it's still on the balance sheet of the Fed, and the Fed is now, you know, trying to suck that money back out of the economy without creating too many hazardous ripples, because it knows that with all that uh, excess of money flowing around, it could really eventually wind up in. <clears throat> too much money chasing too few goods and services, the classic uh, definition of demand pull inflation. So the Fed is quietly <clears throat> trying to pull that money back in and reduce it, the size of its balance sheet so that so it won't be there as like a, a fuel to the fires of inflation if they ever really get going again. Um, <clears throat> most most people today don't remember most people that I know anyway don't remember the uh, the uh, late seventies and early eighties and in the first uh, first quarter of nineteen eighty inflation was roaring along at fourteen percent per year <clears throat> and uh, you know that's way too much uh, generally speaking from zero to two percent inflation is considered 
price stability. Uh, you don't want more than 2% uh, inflation because let's say at 2% uh, inflation, say if it went on for if it went on year after year, uh, the price level would double in 35 years, okay, which is, <clears throat> you know, that's a little much itself. But <clears throat> uh, at, uh, you don't want more than that because it's just, uh, you know, it's uh, arbitrarily redistributes incomes and wealth, and we don't need that. Likewise, we don't want the... Uh, rate of price change to go below zero, we don't want deflation, you think, oh, that'd be great. We get goods and services at lower prices. But uh, deflation is a sign, really, of a very sick economy. And when prices are falling like that, people wait. They, they postpone purchases in hopes that they're going to get a, a better price a little later. And uh, it becomes very negative for the economy and businesses start to go bankrupt and all kinds of bad stuff. So, so really, <clears throat> uh, the consensus in the profession for the U.S. is that between zero and two percent inflation is is reasonable price stability. And so, <clears throat> we're hoping that uh, inflation will stay in that in that range, uh, below two percent but above zero. Uh, one other thing about zero or less inflation is called the Japanese sickness. Japan is dealing with that, has dealt with it for many, many years, and they just can't seem to get the inflation rate to stay above zero for any extended period of time. <clears throat> All of these things I'm talking about, in my opinion, are good reasons to have an alternative decentralized free market currency that is not expanded or contracted at the whim of a group of central bankers who, <clears throat> um, you know, in our case, in the U.S. case, the Fed is not actually a government agency per se. It is overseen by presidential appointees <clears throat> who are confirmed by the Senate. You know, uh, so we do need, in my view, uh, a free market currency decentralized that is not so-called fiat money, money that is created uh, based on government fiat or decree. Okay. Uh, hopefully. Right. Go ahead. Uh, any follow-up, David? Yeah. So um, I guess what what are some of the reasons why, I don't know, maybe you could point out some of the effects that, inflation has had due due to the um the dilution of the money supply such as i mean of course my easy example is you know i used to buy a five pound bag of sugar now it's a four pound bag at the same price oh okay but Go ahead. people don't seem to really to to really catch on to that and what i guess is there a, is there a term that you would use to describe that um, well, there are several ways of looking at it, but, you know, your four-pound bag of sugar that used to be a five-pound bag of sugar is a way of actually disguising a price increase. And, uh, you know, these uh, companies that make these consumer products, they know that we are, <clears throat> uh, that consumers are uh, loss-averse. That is, we are much more uh sensitive to a price increase than we are to a, a decrease in the amount of product uh, in the package. <clears throat> and so um, instead of increasing prices, companies will, these uh, consumer product makers will actually decrease the amount of product uh, in the package. <clears throat> the, um, you know, the five and a half, sorry, the six and a half ounce can of tuna is now down to five ounces. Uh, the other day I saw some uh, six-pack of Coca-Cola that looked a little funny and uh, looked at the uh, uh, the content and it was a 10.5-ounce can instead of a 12-ounce can. So <clears throat> we are seeing this. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, the main reason we resist inflation is that uh, inflation 
brings great uncertainty in you know financial markets stock markets uh if there's anything that they you know whatever they hate worst the, probably they hate uncertainty worse than anything inflation brings uncertainty <clears throat> uh the consumer doesn't know what they're going to get charged the next time they buy the product uh the sellers of the product don't know what to charge <clears throat> for the product and they do you know can resort to subterfuge like reducing the amount of product in the package and so <clears throat> um also inflation creates winners and losers uh there are people whose incomes can go up uh, just as fast or faster than prices go up and so they win at the expense of people's people's incomes are fixed their you know nominal incomes are unadjusted dollars the incomes are fixed and so when inflation <clears throat> unacceptable inflation occurs then uh, the purchasing power of the dollars they have goes down and so uh, you know inflation again is uh, we see that it arbitrarily redistributes incomes and wealth when incomes and wealth are redistributed they should be this redistribution should, should be based on <clears throat> the creation of market value somewhere you know people doing productive work that is sold for for a good price and then they're paid uh, according to the value of the of the goods and services they produce that should be the the uh method of uh, just distributing incomes and wealth in a market economy not some sort of <clears throat> runaway uh, uh escapade of, of prices go ahead Okay, so basically, um, for let's say the average working Joe who's been at at their job for twelve years, getting a three percent raise every year, they're not really all that better off. In some cases, maybe worse off than they were when they started. Correct? Exactly. And uh, you know, let's leave the tax consequences aside just a minute. Let's say that prices rise three percent, and you get a three percent uh, raise. Well, your real income has changed by zero percent, <laughs> and then you know, with our tax system the way it is, <clears throat> um, those additional dollars that you get are likely to be taxed at a higher rate. And so, you know, when you cut, bring back in the tax consequences. In real terms, your income may actually have fallen. If you're, you know, in a three percent inflation environment and a three percent cost of living adjustment, uh, the, the buying buying power on what you have left after taxes is is going to be a little less, even in uh, purchasing power terms. Gotcha. All right. Well, that kind of explains where I would say a lot of people feel they are today. You know. Right. Yeah. Well. Well. Uh, another. Another thing I'm always uh, emphasizing in my classes, and that is that the only way to raise the real wage is through increased labor productivity. That is, companies have to find ways to increase the output per unit of labor input that they get from what they're making. And uh, when you know when they do this, if uh, if a company says, okay, between uh, December uh, January one of the last year and December thirty one of last year, we got three percent more output per unit of labor input, then they could actually pay workers three percent more without adding to their labor cost. <clears throat> so you know you in order to actually increase the real wage received by workers uh labor productivity has to go up and, and pro labor productivity has not been rising near as fast as the rate of inflation over the past couple of decades and so the real wage has been pretty much stagnant 
and it's not because the uh, American worker isn't working hard. They're working just as hard, if not harder, than they ever did. Uh, it's, it's because companies have been overregulated, overtaxed, and uh, not, they've not been given incentives to increase the, the productivity of the labor that they're using. So, you know, I didn't mean to get off into <clears throat> this, but, uh, but you, you brought it up, and it is a good point. Uh, <clears throat> when companies uh, are given tax incentives and uh, lower regulations, you know, when, they're, when it's costless for them to do what they do, when regulations are lowered, then uh, this will help, and it is helping. It has been helping over the last uh, year and a year and a half or so. All right. So um, earlier you were talking about a decentralized currency. Let's let's. Uh, I'm just going to pick Bitcoin for example. Yeah. Um, when you said that deflation's bad, like. Uh, for an economy, if if the um, if the value of the buying power of the currency is increasing, you were saying that can kind of restrict the economy. Um, I mean, right now there's only there's only so many people into Bitcoin, and if it becomes a a strong, I mean, okay, right now there's four hundred billion dollars in all cryptocurrency at the moment right and there's what like 212 trillion estimated of dollars worth of um assets say. assets being transacted in the world so yeah. Yeah. we're not even to half a percent of of the world's money is in cryptocurrency yeah so once more, and I, I personally believe a lot more money is going to come into cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. Uh, once that occurs and the value of Bitcoin really starts to take off, um, is that going to have negative effects for, for let's say, markets that rely on Bitcoin? Well, uh, it's a very complex uh, thing to look at, David, and and the answer to your question, I think, is uh, it, it remains to be seen. Because, um, you know, um, what is needed is a currency that is readily, readily accepted in exchange and stores value well. And uh, <clears throat> the ability of Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency to store value remains, in my view, untested. Now, uh, you know, I, th I think the, our whole concept of what is money is about to change, okay? Agreed. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, but the cryptocurrencies are testing that concept of what is money. And I think it's a good thing. It's time to say, okay, let's see what happens in, in, in an economy, in a global economy, let us say when there is a readily accepted uh, medium of exchange that is not issued by a sovereign government somewhere, okay? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when I said deflation is bad for the economy, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that, you know, my students say, well, when prices are going down, this causes deflation. No, not really, okay? Prices going down is deflation okay so deflation uh, falling prices are are the product of uh something you know the product of let us say just uh how do i put it um too few too few goods and services yeah too oh god too few dollars chasing too few goods and services if you want to call it that okay but uh, <clears throat> okay. but um, you know, I, I don't think we can really, at this point, uh, say analogize from deflation in fiat money, fiat currencies such as the dollar, the yen, the euro, and cryptocurrencies. Uh, cryptocurrencies, <clears throat> you know, the, the whole thing is 
pretty new historically. I mean, uh, they've only been, uh, you know, a factor for about 10 years. And as you say, they are a, a small, tiny fraction of, of uh, global assets, <clears throat> if you wish. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think we can analogize from, from inflation and deflation on fiat currencies and the price fluctuations, the large price fluctuations that we're seeing in cryptos right now. So, uh, okay. you know, cryptos are going to evolve. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, my money, whatever currency my money is in, my money is on cryptos eventually becoming uh, the accepted exchange medium because uh, it's just going to be more advantageous to everybody to use cryptos <clears throat> than to use uh, currency units issued by a sovereign government. I mean, uh, um, you know, you lose a lot with transactions cost and anything that reduces transactions cost and does it effectively is going to replace whatever <laughs> <clears throat> whatever he is causing, you know, is plagued with those high transactions cost. Okay. And that's right. That's what cryptos, I think they do. They cut out the middleman and uh, they reduce transactions cost dramatically. Now, when you say the middleman, you mean banks. I do. Yes, I do. Okay. And, I just want to clarify. And, and also as, uh, as some of the uh, Ted talks on Bitcoin, uh, uh, point out uh, the governments, banks, and other institutions are there uh, primarily to reduce uncertainty. Okay, so if you reduce uh, transactions costs and re reduce you reduce uncertainty using some vehicle or another, then that vehicle is going to be adopted in as many ways uh, as as uh, uh, institutions are able to do so. Right. Okay, so um, one of the things that happened this last week at Consensus in New York was somebody from the CFTC got up and basically said, um, we're still going to regulate. You know, if it's a, if it's a security, the SEC is going to regulate it. If it's a commodity, then we're going to regulate it. But we don't actually know what these are quite yet. And they're, they're kind of waiting to um to define how they view all currency where well, do you see that going well that's a that's a very good point david because uh i mean the the arm of u.s law can only reach so far and uh, <clears throat> uh you know essentially they can't the, you know, basically they can't regulate uh, anything that is uh, outside the U.S. borders or its territorial, you know, jurisdiction. So, uh, you know, I think they will try to regulate it. I mean, uh, these, uh, all these regulatory agencies, they're all very territorial. They, they want to guard their turf as best they can. And so there are going to be attempts to regulate. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, and you and I have talked about this before, I think it would be a mistake for them to regulate uh, cryptos uh, either as a commodity or as a security uh, because, <clears throat> uh, you know, because it is essentially free of national borders. And uh, so... Uh, Business will go elsewhere. Business is going to go to the part of the world where uh, it is least regulated because it can on the World Wide yeah. Web. You know, it can go wherever that it's more advantageous to businesses to <clears throat> to deal in that. So, right, and so I've I've long held that. You know, if, if the SEC is going to continue to see ICOs as securities yes. and require them to meet regulatory compliance in the United States, then all those technology companies are going to take their development elsewhere. And we're actually going to lose all of the money that the, those companies would potentially generate in our economy. And 
I'm calling for Silicon Valley to look like Detroit in 10 to 15 years. Do you think that's a uh, fair assessment? It is very possible. And uh, remember that any sort of government program or action always has hidden costs and unintended consequences. And so, you know, regulating cryptos could have some very bad unintended consequences for the U.S., okay? Mm -hmm. Just uh, pure and simple. And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, I mean, uh, governments are jealous of revenue sources. They're always money hungry, and they're, you know, they're going to uh, uh, tap any revenue sources that they can. I mean, there's this uh, in mounting battle to tax uh transactions across the internet anyway right <clears throat> excuse me and uh you know so far the uh, common sense is held on that but states hate the internet because you know online sales generally speaking are untaxed and they're trying to make sure that everybody who buys anything online is going to pay some sort of tax on it that will be collected by say the local government well <clears throat> you know uh so government is going to try to get its sticky fingers on this, and they're going to do it in the name of, oh, my God, you know, cryptos are perfect for money laundering and tax evasion, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, we've heard that before. Regulating So is cash. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's now called cash that's used to do that. You're right. <laughs> so, so uh but we're gonna we're gonna hear that argument. Oh, we got to regulate it for these reasons, blah blah blah. But the real reason, of course, is uh, <clears throat> governments are always uh, revenue hungry, and they're going to try to get their sticky fingers on any source of revenue that they can, and this certainly includes uh, anything, any activity in cryptos. Okay. Now, as, as far as um, third world countries where there's a lot of people who are unbanked, do you see this hurting them or helping them having a decentralized currency? Well, I think it can only help um, so many low-income countries, and I call them, I really call them less developed and more developed economies. It's really a continuum, sort of, but, uh, you know, the low-income or a less developed countries, <clears throat> generally they have uh, weak or non-existent banking uh, systems. And, uh, you know, I, I had my students watch a little video called Living on One Dollar, where some college boys went to Pena Blanca, Guatemala, to live for three months, and they uh, worked up a system where they'd live on a dollar each per person per day to see what it was like living in extreme poverty like that. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, they wanted to borrow some money, and they went to a regular commercial bank nearby, and it was ridiculous. You know, the documentation they had to have, and, you know, we need an electricity bill, and we need this and that. Well, well heck, uh, how can you produce an electricity bill to document a loan when you don't have electricity in your house? So, right. You know, so in many, many countries, the banking system is uh, totally for the formal sector and not for the informal sector. So most of the people from using the regular banks. So we've seen lots of uh, <clears throat> ways to, to address this spring up. In Kenya, uh, people began to uh, pay each other with uh, cell phone minutes. <laughs> as a little uh, me medium of exchange, and then out of this developed M-Pesa mobile money. As it, yeah, as I've it, used it. <laughs> used M-Pesa, okay. So <clears throat> why is there M-Pesa? Well, because the uh, banking system is not adequate. It has failed to meet the needs of the, you know, the ordinary person in that country. And so cryptos are going to fall right in there. Uh, they're going to be used, I'm sure, by people who don't have any other uh, medium of exchange available to them, say, like, through regular bank. So mm -hmm. I think there's huge potential there for uh, cryptos to be used as a 
medium of exchange by, you know, everybody, including the, the, the very poor farmer in Ethiopia or wherever. All right. So lately there's been, there's been a lot of news stories um, that have been less than positive about uh, different cryptocurrencies. And, you know, I mean, in the crypto community, everybody calls it FUD. It's spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes. But, um, you know, and at the same time, you've got IBM working with Walmart on a pilot project <laughs> to launch, launch a blockchain for uh, tracking produce from farm to table. You've got NASDAQ, um, who's come out and said that they're, they're getting involved in blockchain and how it, they, they put up an ad that it's going to create fast and secure transactions. And, you know, Morgan Stanley reportedly is in talks with GDAX to provide crypto assets to their clients. And JP Morgan is involved with the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. You got all of these big names. I mean, it, you just look at the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and you got UBS, MasterCard, Scotiabank, Credit Suisse, uh, ING. I mean, you name it. It's like it's a hodgepodge of uh, British Petroleum and Shell are both part of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. And so to me, it seems like these are flashing signs that cryptocurrency is about to just explode. And yet people are like, oh, Bitcoin fell $200 today. It's crashing. And I'm like, no, you know. But I mean, as far as from your perspective, why is it that you think there's so many negative news stories out there when there's so much large action from these big players? Uh, the, the, the negative news stories are there to sell newspapers to get ratings. And uh, any new technology like this is, is mm -hmm. going to have its speed bumps. Okay. I mean, uh, you're a little young for this, but uh, <clears throat> there was a time when uh, computers couldn't talk to each other, every computer had its own operating system. And, you know, so finally, uh, Microsoft sort of got the upper hand there with uh, uh, MS-DOS and then later on, you know, Microsoft Office Suite. And it sort of became the industry standard. So we're in the early days here when all these new things are happening and things are really just beginning to sort out. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, don't think that it's one day and maybe sooner than you think. As the guy said last week, one of the people said recently that in five years you go buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks, they'll laugh at you if you offer them dollars because they'll be uh, selling, selling the coffee in cryptocurrency. Now, I don't know if it's going to be five years, but that's short. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, these well. I mean, when I go into Starbucks, I don't even pay with a credit card or, or cash anymore. I just open up their app and scan my code on my phone and I get my coffee. Right. And then it automatically debits your account right then and there, right? Right. But my okay. Starbucks account is in no way near as secure as a cryptocurrency wallet. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, sure. But see, we're see we're evolving. You might even say we're in a revolution now. Sometimes when a revolution is happening, we're a little so we're so close to it, we don't even recognize that it's happening until we look back and say, "Oh, <laughs> that was a revolution we were in." And so, <clears throat> you know, it's evolving so quickly. It could even be perhaps referred to as a revolution that's going on as we speak. And uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies are, are driving it, reducing cost, uh, increasing efficiency, increasing uh, the value of service. You know, all these things are driving it. Mm -hmm. So uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, okay. 
what what I've tried to explain to people that don't seem to understand cryptocurrency and, and why, you know, what kind of value it brings is the security aspect. Like I've had my credit card skimmed at the gas pump at least three times in the last five years. And then I have to go back and, you know, cancel any, any kind of automatic payments I have set up on it and change everything over my, you know, it just, it's a pain. Oh, yeah. But while it's a pain to me, it's it's a huge expense to, to companies like, um, you know, Home Depot, they had 56 million credit cards hacked mm-hmm. and it cost them $320 million. And right. Right. Um, those chargebacks and stuff that happen when there's fraudulent charges, Precise. you know, yeah. that, that all adds up and it just... I just wish I could walk up to the gas pump, scan a code and send it from my phone. And what I'm excited about is Foxconn and several other phone um, manufacturers are actually looking at integrating digital hardware wallets into their phones. Oh yeah. Once they, once they do that, you're no longer talking about a software layer that's that's holding your crypto now you're dealing with a, an actual digital hardware wallet that interacts with the blockchain and i, I find that really exciting because that'll basically enable mobile payments right then and there you betcha yeah and so what what i what i kind of wonder because apple is so secretive about their development hmm. is are they, is this on their radar? I wish I knew because, you know, we saw what, what happened with Blockbuster and Netflix. Blockbuster basically boasted that Netflix would never be a threat. Right. Now and from there, yeah. Their history. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, I feel like putting on classes for businesses to tell them you need to pay attention to moving technologies because if you're resistant to change and accepting new technologies uh you may not be here in a couple of years oh yeah i think uh, i think most businesses that have you know forward-looking uh um leadership etc are working on this they may not yell and scream about it a lot but I believe in, you know, somewhere in those companies, they have people saying, okay, how can we use this to uh, uh, do better and uh, survive, if you will, in the next new, in, you know, in the, ne- the new environment that this is going to create. Right. So for somebody who's looking at getting into cryptocurrency today i mean let's say that right now um you know on coin market cap they they refer to the total value of of all cryptocurrencies as the market cap of cryptocurrency which i know some people hate using that term that way but right now it's you know 400 billion uh if i were to buy Bitcoin today, and then the market cap of crypto goes up to three point five trillion. Yeah, I would think I would be better off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing is, uh, you know, cryptocurrency purchases are so speculative, and uh, please don't anyone, you know, bet the farm, sell the farm, and put it all. Oh no, absolutely put, not. Put. You know, limit your total asset holding to, you know, 5% or less in cryptos. But uh, that said, you know, I think uh, the wise investor is going to have cryptos as a part of their overall balanced portfolio. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's going to go up. There's no guarantees, but I believe it's, uh, it's the future in my humble opinion. Yeah. Well, I'm, I make a practice, especially when broadcasting on YouTube or on a podcast, to never say 
uh, hey, I think this one or that one or, hey, this project is really going to do well because I'm not here to give financial advice. Right. And I'm certainly, you know, not, not going to go down that road, especially if the SEC is uh, extremely motivated to go after uh, people who might be construed as selling unlicensed securities and such. So, right. um, but just generally speaking, um, you know, I would just, uh, we're, and I know this is a huge stretch and we're, you're talking about a crystal ball that doesn't exist, but, right. um, assuming that, that cryptocurrency payments become something, uh, pretty normal in the next five years. Right. What, what percentage of, of the world's money do you think might get into cryptocurrency? Oh, I think potentially 50% and maybe more. 50% of the world's currency. <laughs> yeah. That would be huge. Yeah. It, it would be. It would be huge. In yeah. five years? And so... Oh, uh, I don't know, David, how long it's going to take. Uh, <clears throat> when I took my first management course in 1970, they were saying the cashless checklist society is right around the corner. And, you know, here we are, what, a half century later, and we still have people saying <laughs> they'll get my checkbook when they pry my cold, dead hands off of it money holding behavior changes very very slowly right but we live in a different time now and it could be that uh this money holding behavior is going to change faster than that but setting a five-year or 10-year benchmark on it would be so speculative that that uh I, i would be hesitant to do that no i i i understand that i just wanted to get kind of your gut gut feeling on it. I mean, I, I know I, I would say they're older people that um, they only do cash or check and they don't even believe in having credit cards or debit cards. So, right. You know, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are also people, maybe still people alive who believe that the whole moon landing was staged as well. So. Well, there's flat earthers, but I don't listen to that either. That's good. That's good. <laughs> the the evidence uh, to the contrary is overwhelming, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, is there um, anything else about cryptocurrency that that um, you want to bring up while while I got you on the line? Well, we're not going to get bored <laughs> as we watch this uh, revolution and. And it's uh, technological change and the adoption of these, uh, you know, uh, the blockchain that enables the cryptocurrency, uh, its use cases to many other uh, uses other than just for cryptos, that is happening at, at blinding speed. So, you know, just uh, as you say, fashion your seatbelt, it's going to be a wild ride and mostly good, you know probably all good yeah i mean i i could actually see a little bit of wealth distribution coming along with this crypto revolution quite frankly yeah yeah a wealth creation is not a zero-sum game so the wealth creators are going to they're going to really make out in this new economy as they always have you know whatever economy we had and so I think a lot of wealth is going to be created by this cost reduction, efficiency, enhancement uh, that we're going to get from the, the use of uh, cryptocurrencies and, and the use of blockchain to, to enable the use of cryptocurrencies as well as to enhance many, many other use cases that are now being tested and, and talked about. All right. Well, um, I certainly appreciate your time and, and thanks for lending some of your expertise for people who probably don't even really know anything about QE and what it means <laughs> to the economy. But, you know, I, I really wish that the Fed would just say, 
hey, we want to bolster the economy, so we're going to give Dave a couple million on the balance sheet and let him uh, spur the economy because I'd, I'd be more than willing to step up to the challenge of, um, you know, giving the, the local economy here a little boost. So, <laughs> but unfortunately, it, it just kind of sounds like banks end up always winning in these situations, which is why personally, I think a lot of people are excited about being able to exchange value without having to use intermediaries, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. And, and the banks are, you know, they're uh, frantically trying to find ways to avoid being cut out of the loop on this as as well they should because you know their very survival as institutions could be at stake here yeah agreed all right well um thanks and you know maybe we can do this again sometime i'd love to it was my pleasure have a great evening all right david thank you okay bye-bye so you just heard from my father, Dr. Roger Moorfield from the University of St. Thomas. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to contact me. Uh, you can find me on my website at learntobuycryptocurrency.com. I also have a Facebook page, Learn to Buy Cryptocurrency. And you can message me through either, either of those avenues and... Uh, you know, ask your question. I'd, I'd love to address it in a future episode. If I don't know the answer, then I will look into it and see what kind of answer we can come up with. So thank you for joining us. And I hope you enjoyed this discussion about quantitative easing the economy and cryptocurrency.